I'm I'm hoping that there is going to be a, a you know special segment top ten most manly things Chris Christopherson has ever done. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, yeah, we could whip that up real quick. Wouldn't be hard. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, former athlete, rock star, and prospective vampire hunter. Oh, I'm I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm getting by high and strange. Aren't we all? Because, yeah, I I wanted a good Blade reference, but I just couldn't get there, but... Luckily, you're there for me, Sean. Yeah. I knew there would be at least one Blade reference. Yeah. <laughs> How could there not be? <laughs> I am co-host Peter Cook, and I'm a prophet and a pusher. Partly truth, partly fiction. A walking contradiction. That's accurate. <laughs> Just like... Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, as assessed by the Sybil <laughs> Shepherd character. <laughs> and joining us for the second time on I'd Buy That for a Dollar is a DJ, musician, and writer for The Quietus and All Music. Welcome back, Dustin Kursadovich. Oh, hey, everybody. How's it going? We're doing just fine and dandy over here. Last time you were on, we were talking about Bob James' touchdown, correct? That's right. A couple seasons back. Mm-hmm. Did you bring some smooth jazz for us? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've always got a little in my back pocket. But uh, we got a whole other, uh, whole other place to journey to today, which I'm a very excited shift. about. Yeah, total gear shift. Well, what'd you bring? Well, I brought with me Chris Christopherson's Border Lord. Yeah. I don't know how we didn't do a Christopherson yet, but thank you, Dustin, for writing this wrong. I'm so happy to be a part of this. And this was a selection from our official list of possible albums. Granted, I had just added the record to the list moments before sending it to Dustin, but he went through and picked this one and excited we get to finally talk about Chris. As Jeremy said, it's been a long time yeah, coming. It was, it was, it was kismet. <laughs> he, Chris Christopherson has been mentioned shockingly little on the podcast in general. It, it seems to me I'm surprised that he hasn't like written some songs that we've talked about on various albums. He wrote uh, Ray Price that we covered. Okay, yeah, he was on. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we haven't talked about a ton of the artists that have had hits off of him, although there are quite a few that would easily qualify for this show, and I'm sure we'll get talked about eventually. But today, it's Chris, and we're talking about a record of his that didn't really get a whole lot of love. In fact, it was kind of a passing joke for some people for a long time that this was like an incredibly disappointing, bad album of his, which is something I was not familiar with, because I've always loved it. 
So before we get into that too much, though, let's go ahead and start off with a song. We're going to do side one, track one, Josie. I've been chasing after Josie since the day I could run Even though I didn't know it at the time And I followed her from Texas till she found me undone Just to jump ahead of what I'd left behind She was proud of her young body as a body could be On her way to be a woman Still can see her smiling as she gave it to me Looking like a lonesome little girl Josie, is it true that you've grown harder than your years? Selling them your sadness on the street Chris Christopherson is the Texas cowboy Leonard Cohen. <laughs> I had never noticed how much his voice sounds like Leonard Cohen's until I was really paying attention. I, I guess probably partially just because I'm used to hearing his songs interpreted through other voices. Yeah. I, 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 the only album I actually own of his is Jesus Was a Capricorn, and that's because you, Jeremy, gave me <laughs> a copy because you already... I had doubles. Yeah. Uh, and I just... Kind of, I've only listened to that just recently, but yeah, I definitely picked up on some Leonard Cohen vibes. Yeah, there's both the lower range voice and some of the like vocal affectations, but he's also like an expert wordsmith that you know made him a hot commodity as a songwriter. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, that you point out the. Uh, similarity to Cohen because he has said that he would like the first three lines of bird on the wire on his tombstone. So clearly he's a fan. Now, whether that means he was in directly influenced by Cohen in terms of how he sings, I'm not sure, but, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good, uh, couplet for a triplet for a, a tombstone, <laughs> like a bird on the wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir. I have tried in my way to be free. It's also, very, even though it's a Cohen line, extremely Christofferson, that whole notion of of freedom, which is also it's a it's a 
Uh, maybe maybe I'm just projecting it as being more Christopherson esque because of the context, but freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. That's right. Mm-hmm. No, I think that makes sense with Chris's whole vibe from what I've learned of him as a person and what he stood for. I mean, this is a guy who is, you know, in his day got a lot of pushback from the country music world, not only for his kind of just general rough rebellious attitude, but for his surprisingly liberal viewpoints that he never shied away from expressing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because definitely a lot of country songwriters embraced him, but not so much the country music establishment or country music audiences. Like he really found more of his footing as a performer more with the, uh, the kind of Woodstock crowd than than with the country crowd, even though a lot of country singers performed his his songs. Yeah, and it's really interesting looking back at other people's opinions and reviews of his career, and also some of the critical reception he got at the time, because it just feels like everyone would agree that Chris Christopherson is this legendary figure, and you know this important, brilliant person. And yet everything you look up is just talking about how it's seemingly everything he did was not as good as something else he did or was a disappointment <laughs> for one reason or another. Like it's hard to find a lot of stuff where everyone is genuinely like, yes, this is great. It's just like everyone is endlessly arguing about everything he did. It would seem. Yeah. Everything's always being weighed against something else he did. <laughs> yeah. And then when you go to that thing, it's just like, well, this is okay, but you really got to hear this other thing. And it's just like a never ending loop. <laughs> yeah. And for me, like this is, th- this is the record that is that Christopherson record for me where like, I, I will always point back to it. Like I like his records before this and, and stuff after this, but it, this is the one that I, I kind of came to it a little late. And after I had already heard other music of his, but this is the one that like really kind of like burrowed its way into my brain. And I would, I would go so far as to say it's a uh, late entry into my favorite records and definitely my favorite dollar records. Yeah. This has kind of been a natural favorite for me of Chris's albums. I've got this one, Jesus was a Capricorn and silver tongue devil. I've had all three of those for a while, but this one border Lord, I reach for it more often than the other two. And it wasn't as big of a hit, and like we said, it kind of was a commercial and critical flop in a lot of ways. Ugliest cover, too, of, <laughs> of, of those three. I don't know. I, I like I the like cover. It. There's something about it that really just drew me in, honestly. I, I like it, but it reminds me of like those those kind of like small small label, like one-off label, uh, you know, a, a Lee Morgan record from the seventies that are all recordings that he did that didn't get released on, on blue note. Right. They're just like, Oh yeah. I had my nephew do a painting for the cover. <laughs> I mean, now that you say that it definitely does look like it could have been a pickwick Christopherson greatest hits <laughs> yeah, compilation. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying that with uh, nothing but affection. Yes, absolutely. And I got to say, I think Part of the true charm, or one of one of the many aspects of the charm of Christopherson, is not that he is perfect in anything that he does. I mean, he's not necessarily a great actor, yet he's so watchable and so interesting. He's not really a great singer, yet I'd rather listen to him sing than so many other people and so many other contemporaries. The thing everyone can agree on, it would seem, is that he was a brilliant songwriter. Right. And... 
it's it's hard to argue with that. And he was a hit songwriter before he was a star on his own. I would say that the only way in which his I I would feel that his songwriting isn't perfect is that some of the uh, attitudes about or the depictions of women haven't aged terrifically well. I mean, they're in keeping with the time and better than a lot of things of that time. But yeah. And we should talk about the lyrics on that song we just heard yeah. specifically. For one thing, some of the lyrics are easily misheard and the song sounds a lot more creepy and has more pedo vibes than the actual <laughs> lyrics <laughs> actually imply. Um, I think probably the most misunderstood section the line is Josie. Is it true that you've grown harder than your years? But the way he sings it, it sounds like, is it true that you've grown hotter than your years? <laughs> Which is pretty eyebrow raising. Right. Um, and yeah, so this album, especially, I think like six of the songs on here are him singing about women and usually singing about kind of downtrodden women, like hard luck, rough situations. And it's, you know, it's cringy at times. It's it's of the time. The only thing good I can say about this stuff is it's still, his, his viewpoints still seem like progressive for the time and for country music. Because he's at the very least not being preachy. He's not, the songs aren't like, you know, women, you need to do this to be better. Or like, I know how you should live. It's more just profiles. Right. And I think there's an empathy behind them too, that even, even if like aspects, details of the depiction seem kind of, yeah. Dated. Un- uncomfortable and dated <laughs> at, at best and, uh, and misogynistic at worst. I, they still seem to come from a place of earnest empathy and wanting to understand better. Yeah. And I think when we get into his bio a little more after the next track, it might shine a little bit of light on his perspective and like why he was writing songs about this kind of stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. It made me think of that U.S. Girls album from 2015, Half Free, where Meg Remy, the main person behind U.S. Girls, every song is about a woman in like a downtrodden woman in a bad situation. But most of those are often, you know, first person type of perspective. But, you know, at least I saw that this was because of the fact that about half the album is about various women, that this is considered almost a loose concept album. Right. He uses women a lot and he uses devil metaphors a lot. (laughs) The devil. People were quick to say like, oh, well, that's played out. He did it you know, five months before that on the silver tongue devil and I like he's reaching into the same bag too often. But I mean, it's okay for songwriters to have a theme, especially over like a short few period of years of stuff they're working on. Yeah. No, no one ever got after Ray Davies from the kinks for how often he mentions the sun. It's like every song. (laughs) (laughs) True. Also someone who sang a lot about things from women's perspective but maybe a little more sympathetically or it's aged a little better. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, so Christofferson is obviously closely associated with the outlaw country scene, whether many of these performers consider themselves outlaw country musicians at the time or not is a different story. But the thing with outlaw country is it's often kind of messy themes and it's about imperfect people and it's, 
singers embracing their flaws and not being afraid to be kind of intense people. <laughs> and that doesn't always age well, but it was, it was a pushback against what was seen to be the overly sterile Nashville pop sound of country music. So the people wanted to have that raw, authentic quality to what was going on. And another big feature of it was generally more serious subject matter. Like pop country was kind of light storytelling at times or the same retread themes of relationships. And a lot of outlaw country was taking a hard look at the grittier side of life and being honest about people's flaws and being highly emotional at times. And that shows on this album as well. There's like a few songs where it almost sounds like Chris is about to break down crying while he's performing it. Yeah. Authentic. Authentic at all times. <laughs> so Peter and Jeremy, you guys have both have copies of Jesus was a Capricorn. Have you been listening to Christofferson for a while? Could you have like named Christofferson songs before this, or was he just kind of a figure you were aware of? I would say if I'm honest, I'd say he's, I'd lean more towards a figure I'm aware of. However, I mean like Sunday morning coming down is one of my all time mm -hmm. favorite songs. I've been mm -hmm. long aware of that. I actually found that through the crooked fingers version before I knew the Johnny Cash version. And of course me and Bobby McGee is probably the first time I ever heard his name. Just, you know, he wrote that classic song performed by Janis Joplin. And that was probably the first time a lot of people outside of the country music world had heard his name in the early 70s when Janis Joplin had the posthumous hit with it. Chris and Janis briefly dated, by the way. Oh, whoa, wait, didn't Leonard Cohen date Janis too? The plot thickens. Oh, my. <laughs> I'd say I lean slightly the other way from Peter, where I knew his songs. I throw them on every now and then, but I've never had a hardcore Christofferson phase, which I feel like I'm overdue for. Well, maybe this will spark that. This will, yeah, this will be that spark. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I referenced the scene in Taxi Driver where Sybil Shepard's character, Betsy, quotes a Christofferson song to Travis Bickle, Robert De Niro's character, and, and I... Uh, I know that Taylor Rowley, frequent guest of the show, is a, a big fan of that film as well. And, and I so I messaged Taylor shortly when I was working on what I was going to say for my fake title. I said, I'll give you, we're, we're recording a Chris Christopherson episode tonight, and I'll give you one guess as to what I'm going to say. And <laughs> she got it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Let's hear a second song, and then when we come back, we can get into some of the early bio of Chris Christofferson, figure out how he came to be this legendary figure. All right. Next song we're going to hear is Side One, Track Four, the title track, Border Lord. Darkness had us covered when we split from Minnesota in the morning, in the rain. Black as I was feeling and the street was slick and shiny as a snake. 
song is as they say a big mood it's a whole entire mood yes and it's it's surprisingly groovy too especially for a country song that rhythm section is swinging i have i have played that at dj nights many a time hell yeah yeah i noticed that now more than in previewing the album i was like this one really swings and moves and you know it wasn't that long before this that drums like weren't even allowed in country music at all so (laughs) (laughs) he's always pushing yeah always breaking the rules in one way or another so i'm generally good with this not being a a filmed podcast but especially with the blissed out faces that i'm making while listening to these tracks (laughs) i'm I'm especially pleased that uh nobody can see me those are staying private (laughs) that's right (laughs) those are for me we're fighting against this whole movement towards video podcasts Uh, basically just (laughs) because Why do we need one more thing to do? Yeah. (laughs) Here is our faces while we say the things you hear. Yeah. And then all the edits would be really obvious. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So who's Chris? All right, well, yeah. Let me tell you about about Chris, my buddy Chris over here. He was born on June 22nd, 1936. He is still with us. He's been retired for just a couple of years at this point for health-related reasons. He just didn't want to perform anymore, which, man, a country singer retiring, especially a country singer notable for his wild antics retiring, is kind of a rare thing. Usually they don't make it that long, so good on him. Yeah, no one's ever told Willie Nelson that he could retire. He doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it was an option. Except I think he did retire in like the 70s. And, and then that, yeah, clearly he doesn't like retirement because he quickly came back for 50 more years. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give him another 50. <laughs> so Chris grew up in a military family. Multiple generations had been military and it was very baked into the family identity. He was born in Texas and the family moved around frequently 
from military base to military base and then settled in San Mateo, California, which is where he graduated high school. After that, he went to Paloma College, graduated from there in 1958, summa cum laude, with a bachelor in literature. On top of that, he was such a star athlete that Sports Illustrated featured him in 1958 for his achievements in rugby, football, and track and field. (laughs) There's a weird alternate universe where he pursued that path. Yeah, well, that was like the Sports Illustrated article was like up-and-coming no-name athletes to watch kind of thing. (laughs) Could have been. In a different world... Chris Christopherson and Johnny Mathis are two of the most famous athletes of all time. And Bo Jackson is just a killer singer. (laughs) (laughs) So after graduating from Paloma College, he was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship and went to Oxford. On top of being an athlete, he was also wicked smart and just good at everything. Or maybe just a uh, perfectionist and overachiever. (laughs) A little bit of both. Who knows? (laughs) While at Oxford, he began toying around with songwriting and recording. There was a little attempt to sell him as like a, a Yankee in England playing hillbilly music. Didn't really work. In fact, his original intent with songwriting was that it was supposed to just be kind of a hobby that he was going to use as practice towards his ultimate goal of becoming a novelist. He graduated from Oxford in 1960, and his family immediately pressured him real hard to join the army, which he did. He became a captain and also a trained helicopter pilot, and he was stationed in Germany until 1965. Yeah, just like the monks. Oh yeah, the, the the garage experimental garage band the monks were stationed over there, and that's when they formed. Maybe they hung out. I know Chris had a band in Germany that he had formed. Oh man, that would be so strange. Yeah, wow, <laughs> so different. <laughs> so when he returned from Germany, he was offered a position teaching English literature at West Point. But he decided that he did not want to be in the army. And over the past five years, had also decided that songwriting was not just going to be a hobby, but he wanted to make a career out of it. He had become enamored with the Nashville scene the first time he went there and hung out with songwriters and met some people. He was just like, this is is the life for me. So he turns down the teaching position at West Point, moves to Nashville to become a songwriter. And as a result, his family straight up disowns him. Jesus. So the the late 60s, he's living in Nashville, basically broke, living on a shoestring budget and trying desperately to pitch his songs to everybody and doesn't even have that family safety net anymore. He's completely all out there on his own. Well, it's I mean, it sounds ripe for your songwriting to get more authentic and real. (laughs) Yeah. And if you look at the earliest songs that he got other artists to record, you can also see the kind of trend of him unpacking his conservative military family upbringing. His first hit was kind of a, a pro Vietnam song, which was like the the perspective of a vet coming back and being harassed by anti-war protesters. And then just a few years later, Christofferson himself became an anti-war, anti-Vietnam protester. 
so yeah, there's, there's this real movement. I mean, you can see the family that he came from, like they're not even willing to accept him making his own decisions on this point. There's had to be so much bullshit. He had to move past as far as his worldview and approach to life when he's making this radical change. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. When people, you can see the shift in perspective, someone's like early career. Kind of mm-hmm. makes him the perfect vessel for shifting country music too, though. Yeah, he like is that he comes from that and is taking it somewhere else. So he kind of and it yeah. also makes so much sense his attitude as this outlaw country musician because by the time he started getting famous, he was ruffling feathers instantly. You know, like when he would go on stage to accept awards as a songwriter, everyone else is you know, all decked out in rhinestones and flashy outfits. And he's coming up there in like dirty black clothes and just being like, thanks. <laughs> and <laughs> the Nashville establishment was not stoked about that. They're like, listen, we've already got a Johnny cash. He's enough of a handful. Like we don't need more of this shit here. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of like the, uh, the Hal Ashby of country music. I don't know how familiar you are with Hal Ashby's bio, but it's a similar not at thing. All. Okay. Well, there's, there's a good documentary about him that came out a few years ago. And uh, he was the same thing, a real, uh, real shit stirrer, but they kept him around because, you know, he was very, I mean, like almost magically talented, but every, like every move he made, be it er- early on with uh, challenging racial stereotypes in, in his early films. And, and then with Harold and Maude being, you know, this st- like still surprisingly dark and shocking comedy it was kind of the same thing where he was putting putting stuff he was working within the system and putting stuff in people's faces but still you know gaining success for it but then running into resistance from the establishment the whole time Mm -hmm. yeah that it definitely when you look at his career from that perspective and like what we talked about with the mixed critical reception it starts to make a lot of sense it's like he was too talented to be denied, yet everyone was trying really hard to deny him from the <laughs> beginning. It's like, listen, he's making a lot of money for people with these songs, but man, if we could just like bury him in the corner and not have to deal with his bullshit, that would be great. So let's go back to this bio. Chris is living in Nashville, penniless. He's, he's doing this thing where he got a job basically working as a janitor at Columbia Records, kind of hoping that maybe he could meet some of his idols like the aforementioned Johnny Cash. However, the number one rule of being a janitor or intern at a record label like that is don't bother the talent. It was made clear to him that if he was caught bothering, let alone trying to pass a demo tape to any of these artists, he would be instantly fired. So he's kind of in the background. In fact, he was in the studio watching the entire recording session for Blonde on Blonde, but was too terrified to ever try and approach Bob Dylan out of fear of one, Bob Dylan's just general imposing presence, and two, being instantly fired if he was seen trying to talk to the great Bob Dylan. <laughs> so on top of this, doing the janitor work at Columbia, he also took some work flying a helicopter for oil companies. So he would take like a full week, fly helicopters out to the Gulf and transport people to these different oil rigs and be out there for long stretches of time, which he said was actually great for songwriting. He'd just be basically in the middle of the ocean writing some of his earliest, biggest hits like Me and Bobby McGee, uh, Help Me Make It Through the Night, songs like that. And then 
on the weeks off between flying out to the oil rigs, he would come back to Nashville, work the janitor work, and then spend any little free time he had between all of that, going to all the labels and trying to pitch songs. By 1966, he gets some of his first songs starting to be recorded by others. Some of them are starting to make big hits, and he's starting to get awards, like we said. I think he was something like the first person to win the songwriter award from both the Grammys and the country music awards in the same year. So this is a guy whose songs are not only being covered by country musicians at this point, but you have people from all over the music industry that are covering his songs. Like there's a short list here. You got Jerry Lee Lewis, Roger Miller, Farron Young, Ray Stevens, Ray Price, Bobby Bear, Johnny Cash, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and on and on. And uh, as we also mentioned, Janis Joplin in 1971. He went mainstream. So, yeah. <laughs> so he's doing all of this or right around the same time. One of his first famous friends that he makes in Nashville is a guy named Cowboy Jack Clements. And early on in their friendship, Chris is reading Jack a letter that he received from his mother, just berating him for his decision to move to Nashville and specifically calling him out for wanting to hang out with low-life drug addicts like that no-account Johnny Cash. Cowboy Jack Clemens thought this was so funny that he showed the letter to Johnny Cash, <laughs> and this became Chris's first introduction to Cash. He said that Cash's first words to him ever were, it's always nice to get a letter from home, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's met Johnny Cash briefly. He actually became better friends with Johnny's wife, June Carter Cash, because while the, you know, the artists in the studio are recording, a lot of times their family and musicians and everybody would else be hanging out bored in the back room. And Chris got to meet some of them. So June becomes his friend and agrees to try and pass some of his tapes to Johnny. So Chris is like sneaking her tapes. He would like drop them in her purse when no one was looking so that he wouldn't get fired <laughs> for this brazen act. June takes him back to Johnny. He listens to the songs and reportedly either leaves them on a stack or possibly throws them out the window into the lake next to his house. One of the two. <laughs> A few weeks go by and Chris is getting frustrated that he hasn't heard back whether Johnny has listened to his songs or not. So there's this story that there's multiple sides to, and I'll try and cover a couple of them. But supposedly Chris Christofferson, during one of his uh, helicopter flights, took a the long way <laughs> and landed his helicopter in Johnny Cash's backyard with the intent of giving him a demo tape or seeing if he had listened to him or something. Chris's account of it is that he landed there, realized it was a bad decision, Johnny Cash wasn't even home, and then he left. Johnny Cash's version is that he was home when the helicopter landed, and that he came outside and met Chris Christofferson, who had a beer in one hand and a tape in the other, handed it to him, and then he listened to it and heard this new song, Sunday Morning Coming Down. Whichever story is true or whether the helicopter even ever landed in Johnny Cash's house, <laughs> Johnny did listen to the tape and that was his first selection of a song that he liked and he recorded it and played it on live television in 1970, which was the final thing that really kind of launched Chris Christofferson's career and gave him the record deal for his first album. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, hard to tell what the truth is in a story like that especially because you know, the narrator of the song sunday morning come down had a uh, 
a beer for breakfast and it didn't taste bad. So he had another. And I think maybe yeah. both Christopherson <laughs> and Johnny Cash probably had as well. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Uh, Chris's side is that he was a very responsible helicopter pilot and he never drank while flying and said that actually it's impossible to fly a helicopter with a beer in your hand because it requires two hands at all times. Which makes sense. And, you know, seeing as like how much of an overachiever he kind of was and was good at everything, it feels like he probably wasn't half-assing work-related stuff as much as he kind of cultivated this, you know, kind of aw shucks country singer personality. I think he, he took shit pretty seriously when it was important to him. He's army. Be all that you can be. And yeah. Ivory Tower Oxford graduate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't you don't get all of those places just fucking around, you know? I mean, maybe maybe he just had some empties he wanted to like give him for the deposit. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you got a recycling? Also, here's my demo tape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On the flip side, Johnny Cash's story is has a lot more zazz. Yes. Yeah, that it's whole more fun. That whole sure. uh, print the truth versus print the legend. <laughs> when weighed with that, those two options, print the legend. They say. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, Johnny Cash was a major star by this point, so he knew how to work the system. He knew how to tell a story. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, he was uh, no stranger to the tabloid headlines. I mean, Chris's mother's warnings about Johnny were probably fairly accurate around this time. <laughs> he was a bit of a wild man and yeah. a heavy drug user for a long time. So regardless how we get there, like we said, Johnny Cash records Sunday morning coming down. And there's also a fun story of the first time he performs it on television. Um, I forget which show it was, but they asked him to edit the line or the, the word stoned. They didn't want that on there. And he was like, Oh yeah, I'll edit it. It's fine. And then goes on TV and, before performing the song gives a shout out to Chris saying that he's the songwriter and then says like, remember that name, he's going to be big and then plays the unedited version of the song, much to the shock of the producers of the television show. So again, it's just like, all right, these two guys are, you know, <laughs> define the system. We got another one here. Like cool. <laughs> now they're in cahoots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just what all the label executives wanted. Got a couple of Jim Morrison's over here. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking of that too. I was like, I won't mention it. Ah, okay, let's. Go that's there. what the guest is for. Yeah. <laughs> so when Chris finally gets his actual solo record deal, it's 1970. He signed to a label called Monument Records. Released his debut album, simply called Christofferson, which was later re-released to better sales as Me and Bobby McGee, off the, the strength of the single. And then he followed that in 1971 with The Silver-Tongued Devil and I, which was seen as the first time where he was starting to become a star in his own right. Some people knew him as a hit songwriter, or at least the people who would follow those details. But it wasn't until his second album where he started to kind of have hits on his own with songs that hadn't already been recorded by other people. So there was a lot of pressure on this third album that we're talking about today, Border Lord. Because a lot of people saw it as like, this is the time where he has to fully come into his own as a solo star, which is also why every song in this album is a Christofferson original that had not been recorded by someone else yet. And as we've 
alluded to, it didn't work. This was by far his least successful of those first three albums and was seen as such a disappointment that some people probably thought that they had heard the last of him as a solo artist at this point. Wow. <laughs> huh. Yeah. It's interesting to go back <laughs> and see these opinions because now it's like, oh, well, everybody knows Christofferson. He's like one of the most famous country singers of all time from people's perspective now. He's one of the highwaymen. Exactly. <laughs> Him and Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings. And who was the fourth one? Willie Nelson's in there. Willie Nelson. That's right. How can I forget Willie? <laughs> <laughs> How do you guys feel about the Highwaymen record? Because I kind of can't stand it. I don't think I've really spent time with it. I feel like a song or two have, has come up here and there that never really jumped out at me. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds very much of its era and it's easy for me to... Or, it's hard for me to get past that, the the sound of it. Yeah. Because so, it's what, like mid 80s? Yeah. Yeah. I've had some people try try to convert me on it over the years, and it hasn't worked yet. <laughs> Maybe someday. I mean, yeah. all four of those guys are great, you know, obviously legends, but that mid 80s country production, it's tough. <laughs> I haven't quite developed an ear for it yet, and maybe I never will. Yeah, I feel pretty much identically to how I do about traveling Wilburys. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, I kind of can get behind traveling Wilburys, but it's still, it's still tough. <laughs> yeah. Same vibe for me. So this album was followed up with the record that we've mentioned a few times. Jesus was a Capricorn, which was nearly a flop as well. In, in fact, it didn't take off at all until the third single became a surprise hit. The song, why me? And it kind of relaunched his career in a lot of ways and took off from there. And this was around the time that his prestigious acting career was also starting to take off. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Take, it took off inauspiciously with Dennis Hopper's sophomore directorial effort. The last movie, which uh, was not a commercial success and was not available for decades afterwards, but his second feature where he where Christofferson was the star was a movie called Cisco Pike, which I am a big proponent of. Yeah, when we were discussing this episode and like picking which record we wanted to talk about, you had said that if we talked about Cisco Pike, then you were definitely wanting to do Border Lord. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, right. Both That's Peter right. and I took the recommendation and checked out Cisco Pike. Jeremy was defiant as always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're lost, man. I'm a busy man. <laughs> He's got podcasts to edit. <laughs> no, I under I understand it. You know, mo- movies. You know, they're they're a bit of an investment. This one's really special. Also, not commercially successful, similarly to Border Lord, and it wasn't critically successful at the time either, as I understand it. But it's become a uh, a cult favorite over the years. I I saw it when I was living in Portland, Oregon, at a revival 35 millimeter screening and the house was packed surprisingly but it's it's a very dour gritty film harry dean stanton the of course beloved character character actor from repo man and he was you know he was the dad and say anything for anybody who's not familiar was he the dad and say oh, say anything no 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 that's that's john mahoney 
He was the dad. Yeah. He, he was the dad in another uh, '80s teen comedy. Thank you for correcting that. <laughs> yeah, of course, Paris, Texas. Yes, Paris, Texas. One of his most beloved roles. And I thought a lot about Paris, Texas while watching Cisco Pike. I feel like those two movies, tonally and pacing wise, are very similar. Yeah, I, I would. I would say you know, Paris, Texas is probably the more artful of the two. Mm-hmm. Or at least mo- most more self-consciously artful. I don't mean that as a criticism of either film. There's a, a bit of a more like pulpy kind of grindhouse element to Cisco Pike, even though it uh, it's got a, a kind of art film pacing to it. Yeah, and like shockingly good performances from actors who weren't yet that famous. I mean, we mentioned Harry Dean Stanton, who is brilliant in everything, but an early like pre-fame Gene Hackman role plays a crooked cop and is just brilliant. It's right around the same time as the French connection. Mm-hmm. So from what I read, he left the filming of Cisco Pike and drove straight to film the French connection. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, early performance from Karen black, a very young That's right. Karen black. <laughs> and then there's other people that I didn't expect to see in a movie like Doug Sam from the Sir Douglas Quintet pl- playing mm-hmm. a musician in there. <laughs> that was a trip. So yeah. it's interesting too. Cause I read the description before watching the movie and it reads like a nineties stoner comedy. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah. Former rock star gets like huge amount of weed and has to sell it to his friends in one weekend. <laughs> like, all right, well time for a screwball comedy, I guess. And then you start watching it. Like you said, it's like art film pacing and, powerhouse performances and this really strange kind of dark moody energy and i loved it i love border lord love that movie uh, it makes sense that to view them as kind of companion pieces they yeah. were just released a few months apart similar thing of like they weren't well received at the time but people have reevaluated them now and uh yeah if you like this record and you're into chris highly recommend looking up that movie at the time of this recording, it's free on YouTube. That's how Peter and I watched it. So pretty easy to get. So just as an aside, it was pretty in pink. Harry Dean Stanton was in pretty in pink. Ah, that's right. There you go. That's you know, okay. for the record. Yes. For the record, Harry Dean Stanton was in pretty in pink. For the record live. Well, luckily, <laughs> I, luckily, I've seen say anything more times than I would care to admit but here i am admitting it and i'm like i don't remember harry dean stanton in there <laughs> no that was i did i i got the got the two got my wires crossed but yeah and you know it's another uh you know famous grumpy actor that i'm that i'm a fan of so yeah you know. of course yeah he, he was uh later the father on fraser that's right yeah john mahoney that is and al- also uh one of my favorite parts of barton fink oh um, man yeah a classic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just going to we... say one more thing about this movie, and then we're going to play a song. The scene where they open up the stack of marijuana that he's supposed to sell is hilarious because he rips it open and it looks very much like lawn grass clippings. There's like twigs <laughs> and shit in there. <laughs> and Chris's like reaction in it is he like 
has this sour look on his face and he's like, oh, this is bad. And Gene Hackman, the crooked cop who's trying to force him to sell it, is just like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And like, as the audience are like, oh, he's going to say, you got screwed. This isn't weed. <laughs> and then Chris is like, I mean, bad isn't good. This is amazing <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, hey, what? <laughs> yeah, that part cracked me up that he meant, I meant bad like good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Great movie. Highly recommended. Okay, next song. We're going to hear, this is a, a Dustin selection, Somebody Nobody Knows, side one, track five. Alone in a bar room, a young girl is sitting smiling at nothing at all and she stares now and then at the eyes of the men in the mirror that hangs on the wall she's waiting for someone and knowing there's no one who cares If she comes or she goes Just a soul in the shadows The world never sees She's somebody nobody knows Someone no one's ever known Crying when no one can hear Somebody's dying alone In a city where nobody Yeah, that one right there definitely has some Leonard Cohen vibes to it. But I also almost got like uh, Skip Spence or the the classic Outsider album recorded by one of the members of Moby Grape after he was released from a mental institution. Got almost some vibes from that. And I could almost see like chris christopherson like could is there another way he could have gone like the an outsider songwriter route yeah and what would what his albums have sounded like if he never got famous and just like stayed poor <laughs> struggling with making stuff would he have gotten weirder it's entirely possible would he be like a jackson c frank kind of character yeah yeah maybe he would have been recording albums with jandek instead of rita coolidge <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Rita Coolidge is on this album, isn't she? Yes, because they were dating at this point and married a little bit after this, I believe. I think that's right, yeah. And then they did a couple albums together where she was like billed next to him. Aside from everything else that 
has been pointed out. I feel like it's one of his most classically country songs too. Like almost, you know, like the sad sob story, almost to the point of being maudlin, but it gets me every damn time. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Like you could easily make the argument that he's just going with some pretty cheap emotional tropes here, but the way he delivers it, it's still affecting, you know, it's so good. Yeah. Completely agreed. It's one. It's, I don't really play guitar and sing definitely in front of people anymore and uh, rarely just on my own at home. But this is the last song that I actually went out of my way to learn and sing by myself in my basement, not to anybody else, because I'm so moved by it. That's great. I love that. We'll have to make a a private recording for our Patreon or something. (laughs) I'd consider it. (laughs) All right. If the money's right. All right. I've got a recording. I'll sell it to you, Sean. <laughs> that's, that, that's why that microphone was hanging in my basement. <laughs> <Yeah>. Jeremy's got a wide web. <laughs> Dirt on everybody. That's right. Anytime someone guests on the podcast, he bugs their house. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the contract. Part of the contract. It's in the contract. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if everybody read their contracts, they would know what they're signing up for, but not everybody reads the fine print. It's true. Well, you know, it's in that pop-up dialog box that, you know, you just have to check, check the box at the end. So I just, I, yeah, everybody just scrolls through mm-hmm. dangerous. <laughs> well, Jeremy, you got any questions for me? I do have a question for you, Sean. Okay. Are you going to cover the entire rest of Chris Christopherson's career in the next two minutes? Nope. Oh. (laughs) Well, let's skip ahead then and let listeners figure that out on their own if they want and just see, do you have any other albums like this if people dig this album? Yeah. I got a couple good albums and a couple of them we've talked about before. First up, the aforementioned Willie Nelson, later bandmate of Chris Christopherson, I really like his album, The Troublemaker, from 1976. It's his record that has a lot of gospel songs on it, but it has some kind of challenging content, reassessing people's attitude towards Jesus and Christianity, as outlaw country mis- country musicians do from time to time. That one's a, it's a dollar bin record. Really, really good stuff. Next one that we mentioned and have covered before, Ray Price's For the Good Times from 1970, featuring at least two Christofferson penned songs on there. What was the other one other than For the Good Times? Help Me Make It Through the Night. For the Good Times was the first song on side A, and Help Me Make It Through the Night was the first song on side B. So prime spot features for Christofferson penned songs on that Ray Price album. And my third and final suggestion, another record that we have covered before, and this is a country album by someone who is not typically thought of as a country musician, Jonathan Edwards, Honky Tonk, Stardust Cowboy, also from 1972. Yeah, that one has kind of outlaw country vibes by default because it's a folk dude doing country, so it (laughs) it kind of sounds different than most country at that time. Exactly. You know, I just thought of this comparison too, but both Christofferson and John Fogarty are guys that grew up in California and then pretended to be from other parts of the country (laughs) (laughs) in all of their songwriting. (laughs) Very true. I feel like 
as and I'm speaking as a big John Fogarty fan, I I feel like uh, his pretending is a little bit more egregious. John Fogarty's that is maybe. I mean, our, our opinions are well documented on our two part John Fogarty episodes that we did earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge John Fogarty apologist. I'll just leave it at that. Oh yeah, no, me too. Me too. But it, but uh, that doesn't mean I think he's from the Bayou. Yeah, <laughs> I think they were both songwriters that really understood the concept of not necessarily writing from their own perspective all the time. They're yeah. really good at putting themselves in other people's shoes, which is something I want to mention too for the you know questionable lyrical content on this and other albums by Chris. Is it's not necessarily him. 100% behind the viewpoints and everything he's saying. Sometimes it's him just, uh, in fact, probably most of the time, it's him imagining characters that are maybe loosely inspired from some of his own experiences, but it's all storytelling. He wanted to be a novelist, remember? Right, of course. Sean, one I will add on to your list of recommended similar albums. I'm Please do. I'm really only adding it on because of the Rita Coolidge connection, but her anytime... Anywhere album from 1977 is fantastic. And man, you will find that thing for a dollar, two dollars, just about any record store you go into. Right on. Yeah. And there's a lot more great Chris content from later in his career, all endlessly debated as to whether it's good or not. So you're just going to have to go out there, buy the damn records, and form your own opinions. A lot of stuff after this, he gets a little more pop-friendly, um, a little bit less of that kind of down-and-dirty, authentic country stuff, but he's had different shifts throughout his career and a very, very long career. He was recording albums right up until his retirement, acted in at least 50 movies, if not a lot more than that. Yeah, he's in the Blade movies, obviously. Like we, <laughs> Yes, that was a huge late-period career comeback for him you know he had the highwaymen and then he had the blade trilogy and amazing stuff i'd also heard as a side note that he um started experiencing heavy memory loss issues in his 70s and for a while had been diagnosed with early alzheimer's and dementia and then eventually realized that he had just contracted lyme disease in the mid 2000s and had gone undiagnosed for like a decade and then once they switched him from his like Alzheimer's treatment to a Lyme disease treatment, he regained a lot of his memory and was able to be more productive in his last few years before eventually retiring. Wow. Yeah. And quick shout out for his final acting role before retiring. He played a small part in the movie Blaze, the biopic about the underground country musician Blaze Foley. He played Blaze's dad in it and was brilliant like amazing way to cap off his film career lots of good albums lots of good movies highly recommend digging into the world of chris christopherson excellent well dustin while you're here is there anything you wanted to mention to the i'd buy that world oh well sure i dj a lot around southeast michigan you can uh follow me on instagram at golden period feelings period now or uh look at my website goldenfeelings.website that really is what it is it's not goldenfeelings.com that was too expensive it's goldenfeelings.website <laughs> <laughs> and uh which was a dollar <laughs> 
Just getting by high and strange. That's right. You can, right? That's right. That's <laughs> I'd right. buy that domain name for a dollar. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, well, I'll check you out over there. Oh, yeah. Please do. Come see you spin if we're out on the east side ever. We're out on the west side, in case people didn't know. The southwest side, specifically, of the mitten, because Michigan is shaped like a mitten. <laughs> A mitten, a mitten with a very small dog jumping over it. Yeah. I've never heard it described that way, but that is pretty accurate. Yeah. Once <laughs> I once I saw it that way, I couldn't I couldn't unsee it. Well, thank you so much, Dustin. This is a, this was an album I wasn't at all familiar with. I'm glad to learn more about Chris and spend more time with his versions of his songs. Well, thank you. I, it was. It's always my delight to talk Border Lord and Cisco Pike and Cisco Pike. Oh, oh yeah, any day of the week. I expected that to be the majority of the conversation on this episode. We kept it relatively brief compared to what I was thinking it was going to be. Well, yeah, no, I don't want. I don't want to force the the subject. I, I just. I just want more people to see it. All right. Well, the point has been made. At least, hopefully, yeah. people check that one out and a whole bunch of other stuff. What song are we going to close out on? Oh boy. It's kind of the most anthemic song for this this period of Christofferson or if not not anthemic in its sound but anthemic in its message. Getting by high and strange. Possibly my favorite song on this record. It's it's so good. It's so, good. It's so loose and fun and catchy and Anthemic, like you said, man, it's it's good stuff. I love his little chuckle in it. Yeah, <laughs> it almost sounds like maybe he was quite high at the recording yeah, and got a right. little <laughs> a little confused with his lines, and then yeah. just thought it was funny and kept that take and put it on the record. Yep, <laughs> amazing. Oh, I'd also read that this song and the title track are the two that are kind of different in theme from a lot of the other content on here because they're both about his new life as a touring road musician. He'd only been full-time on the road for a short period at this point. Like we said, just a few months ago was the first record that started to establish him as a star on his own. So he's just, at this point, he's been out there, you know, high and strange, (laughs) separated from his family, his first taste of fame, but still encountering a heck of a lot of pushback from the establishment this is one of his songs about it one real last quick note i would like to make before we get out of here is this is another 1972 album we did it again (laughs) we did it can't be stopped (laughs) we cannot sleep 51 years old this year (laughs) yeah (laughs) huge anniversary (laughs) yeah you know, and this one, of course, was not mentioned in our list of noteworthy albums from 1972 at the beginning of the season, but we're going to make this. We're bringing it back. We're going to yeah. make this a noteworthy <laughs> album from that year. Right. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for listening to yet another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. My name is Sean Hartman. And? And? Uh, my name is Dustin Kursadovich. New York City was a stitch in time when I stood all I could of LA. 
Batting up pieces of my tangled mind And digging something different every day, yeah Soon as I was better, I was moving on Getting it together, getting good and gone and by New ain't nothing but a state of mind Keeps a man from missing what he left behind I'll take anything that I can find Anyhow, anywhere, anyway, anytime I'll keep living till the day I die As long as I can get it up for one more try Bye High, strange.